3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. <laughs> Good morning. It is Monday morning, the 24th of January, and it is absolutely wonderful to have your company on today's show. It is 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name's Evan Wallace, and with me in the studio is the wonderful Caitlin. Caitlin, how's it going? I'm good, thanks Evan. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's been a couple of weeks since it we've has. been in here together. How's um, how the last fortnight been? It's been uh, really Quite good, actually. I did the Two Bays trail run down on the Mornington Peninsula last weekend, which was absolutely beautiful. And um, apart from that, I have just been trying to keep myself cool. How was your trip (laughs) up to... You went up north, right? I did. I did go up north. It was great. I saw a friend who I was supposed to see last year, an old school friend who I've known since I was 11. And yeah, it was just lovely hanging out with him and his wife and their first child and a lot of just very, very uh, relaxing times in the tropics. And it was beautiful, beautiful being by the beach. Also did a few interviews for a podcast project that I'm working on as well too. So enjoyed that. Enjoyed getting Queenslanders' perspectives on the year ahead. So yeah, it was a it was a fascinating time. And um, yeah, and always yeah, lovely to be amongst the tropical birds. And uh, that puts a smile on my face. And how about the run? Tell me a bit more about that. Oh, so that was that was a uh, 28 kilometers through the national park down there. So that was. From where, where did we start? We started at Dramana, so we went from Dramana to Cape Shank over Arthur's Seat, mm-hmm. and it was it's the second time I've done it, and it was it's just lovely. It's just such a beautiful way to experience that part of the world or any part of the world really. I love running on trails, and it um, yeah, it was just lovely. I mean, you know, I think I sort of kept myself in isolation more or less for the week leading up to it because I just thought, I just don't want to, I've trained so long for this thing. I just don't want to get to the start line and be like, was that a sore throat? (laughs) Am I coughing? Um, So I sort of kept myself away from everybody. And then um, it was only when I actually got to the start line that I realized like, I am surrounded by people (laughs) panting heavily. (laughs) What am I doing? But I've been been fine. I'm glad. I'm glad you had a really good time as well too. It sounds like it was a a very special run and it was always in hand. Never a moment of doubt with with the run. You were feeling pretty strong and comfortable over the the journey. Yeah, I mean, this is... um, kind of my favorite thing to do so a few weeks ago like a couple of months ago I did a um, a run up in the Dandenong Ranges which was just also absolutely spectacular and that was like up and down Mount Dandenong yeah so like a lot of elevation and uh, basically a lot of um, speed walking up hills which is 
you know definitely not running but it is kind of <laughs> like that's the that's the appeal of it really is that you're not just like running flat for ages you're sort of going up and down and up and down yeah it's brilliant uh, good how very very good we have a lovely assortment of interviews on today's show do you want to we kick do. us off by telling us who we've got on the show first today caitlin So first up this morning is uh, Warren Roberts, who is the founder of Yarn Australia. So I have been working, or not working, but I have been doing storytellers workshops with Warren and a group of other people uh, for, I actually don't know how many months, but we started in May, however long that is. And it's, it's such a great way of like learning how not learning how to tell stories but like learning to appreciate my own stories and one one's own stories I suppose and so I wanted to talk to Warren about or have a bit of a yarn with Warren basically (laughs) uh any excuse and um so yeah I thought I'd invite him to come and tell us about yarn how people can get involved the kinds of workshops that they do because they do online workshops as well as in-person events if people are located up in New South Wales, they're a bit more accessible, I think, up there than compared to Victoria. So I thought I'd, I wanted to just talk to him about that. Really looking forward to it. That mm. should be a great conversation. And then a little bit later this morning, 7.45-ish, we have Viv Allenson on the show. And it's a follow-up from the report on the Royal Commission into Aged Care. Viv is the CEO of Moroba Caring, and she's talking about how aged care has been working during the pandemic. Mm. This should be a fascinating discussion that Jacob had earlier in the week. And then after 8, as a reminder, we're running through from 7am to 8.30am on 3CR Breakfast. You'll hear an interview that I recorded last year with Pat Ansel Dodds and with January 26th just around the corner. It's a conversation that traverses constitutional recognition, challenges that the Arunta people in Alice Springs have experienced over generations and continue to experience today, and Pat's views and hopes for the future. This is 3CR Breakfast. You're listening to Evan and Caitlin, and right now it is Shingle by Shingle from Evan. Eric Bibb. Folks stumble and fall, ain't nothing new at all. We just keep coming up with new ways of going down. Whether you're poor or rich, at the bottom of the ditch. You can finally see the light and turn your life around Shingle by shingle I'm patching up the roof Row by row I'm bringing in the crop Love makes a change I'm living the proof New water's in the well and I'm grateful for Every I've had my share of debts and some regrets I'm leaving all that behind and moving on I thank God today I can truly say My soul's dark night has turned to dawn 
shingle by shingle I'm patching up the roof Row by row I'm bringing in the crop Love makes a change I'm living the proof New water's in the well And I'm grateful for Every drop Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Send me on my way. Send me on my way. 
You are on 3CR. This is Monday Breakfast with Caitlin and Evan. It is the 24th of January and the big headline this morning is that Australia's offshore processing centre on Nauru is going to cost taxpayers nearly $220 million over the next six months as it holds only 107 people on the Pacific Island. So it currently costs taxpayers more than $4 million a year to hold one single person within the detention facility. And that's apparently a little over $11,000 per person per day. So, I mean, it just, the, the kinds of policy decisions that are being made here, Evan, are numerous and baffling, I think. Oh, they are baffling and they're cruel. They're really Mm. cruel policy decisions. That's the underlying feeling that I have when I think about Australia's approach to refugees. It's just the immense cruelty that's associated there. We're heading to January 26th, which is a day where many people consider nationhood and identity and there's lots of debates around what the future of the country looks like. And while Mm. that often, I suppose, that conversation will often look at the absence of constitutional recognition or the absence of um, understanding as to how Australian nationhood has 
affected and impacted and devastated Aboriginal communities. I think that you know, over this week, it's that space for broader discussion as well too, as to thinking about how do we consider ourselves as a community of people. And when you think about the way in which uh, refugees are treated uh, and just these uh, absolutely abominable choices where folk are held up in the worst of conditions uh, indefinitely for, as you're saying, an exorbitant amount of money, it just is a feeling of, of shame that goes there, of sadness and I really hope that somewhere in the context this year, although I don't know what this hope is exactly based on, but there is some space for discussion around Australia's approach to refugees at, at this year's federal election. There, are, Yeah, there are so many things that I think need to be addressed in the campaign leading up to the election. And I think that is both at a federal level, but also at a state level as well. I think there's a lot more that Victoria can be doing as a as a state to really I think we need to be putting a lot more pressure on the federal government to I mean basically pull its finger out and you know look take care of people look after people um even though you know it's not really within their mandate but um you know that's sort of not what they see themselves as to, as doing but um they don't they don't see it as their role perhaps yeah, absolutely. There are ways and means that the Victorian government does support refugees and asylum seekers in, in the absence of federal support or recognition through mm. for different program support programs. Um, but as you're saying, um, there could be a lot more from an advocacy, from a lobbying perspective. I've been talking to Australians over the last number of weeks in different pockets, a lot around Melbourne and a lot in um, key electorates within the state, mm. I found it fascinating that when I've asked people what issues they would like discussed and debated at this year's federal election, mostly it's individuals who are over 60 that will talk about um, their desire for Australia's treatment of refugees and, and asylum seeker policy to be addressed at the election. Amongst younger generations, I'm really concerned that for people who are about our age, it's not an issue that's coming through at the forefront of people's thinking, that it seemed to be, and admittedly working with a small sample space, but where it's concentrated and where that response quickly went to refugee rights, very much around 60-plus demographics. Mm. Any, any thoughts as to why that might be, Caitlin? I would imagine that younger people are a bit more concerned about climate change. And yeah. I think that that kind of dwarfs any other concerns. If you ask people to have like one, one thing that they're concerned about, they might list, they might list climate change first and foremost. But I think that if you've sort of seen the planet, if you know, if you're over 60, people who are over 60 see, have seen the planet warming, they've seen a lot of change and perhaps they can recognise the the cruelty and how how unusual that is for a government to be so for for you know a democratic government to be so cruel to people who are fleeing for their lives and when especially when Australia has a history of accepting and. Um, you know, taking in refugees, which as as we should, you know, when I just, I just, um, I, I become sort of slightly lost for words because I think that 
it's so it it beggars belief the the way that we treat um refugees here that and you know obviously i'm i'm british we have also a horrible horrific legacy of you know treatment of refugees and asylum seekers i mean that's definitely not um lost on me but i think that that's something that really comes through for people who are maybe a bit older who they've they've seen they've seen it differently they've seen it they've seen this policy being played out differently and my concern too is just there's that level of people being if not desensitized then potentially just worn out too and accepting Mm. of just the horrible political reality that exists within Australia where you have both major political parties that have just gone down the path of revolting political expediency and really throwing the hopes and prospects and rights of refugees away for their own political gain. Uh, And that with the sense of that so entrenched across both what's seen in inverted commas, central, uh, centre-left and centre-right politics in Australia, people feel as though it's not going to change and not going to move and potentially are now focusing on other issues where they feel as though they have that ability to shape and shift the debate. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. This is 3CR Monday breakfast. It's top of 34 degrees coming up. It's been a hot string of days. How have you been going with the heat, Caitlin? Oh, God. I have been coping i suppose <laughs> yeah i've been all right um yeah i think uh earplugs and a fan at night yeah and just just trying to get through each day that's a good healthy approach i had a bit of respite over the last couple of days in adelaide there was oh, some nice. rain there and it was relatively cool so a bit of a refresh but coming back to melbourne it's uh yeah, a reminder that we're here and it's summertime. This is a song that very much takes me into summer. It's Magnolia by Gang of Youth. After this, though, we're speaking with... Warren Roberts from Yarn Australia. That's right. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Here's Magnolia by Gang of Youth. Show me the 
around Cause you're all being ignored Deadpan and bright As I flip you the bird I'm a pain in the ass Yeah, I'm a real piece of work Just waving my arms like some terrible mind And shaking my ass Till they kiss it goodbye Just show me the right things That I didn't do Oh, enlighten me now With impossible love From the fall of you Just tell everyone that I know What I did, I did for us And it hates Cause I'm terrified of dying is 3C uh, Monday Breakfast. That was Magnolia from Gang of Youth. And a couple of people were asking, what's the music that you're playing at the start of today's show? Well, started with Shingle by Shingle from Eric Bibb. And then after that, it was 90s classic Send Me On My Way by Rusted Root. I couldn't help myself just having a little bit of fun there and a bit of summer music. That last song, Magnolia, it really, really was on repeat in January 2021. A few very happy memories listening to that tune, canning beers that I just brewed for a lovely, lovely Christmas present and being out there with the sunshine. And yeah, glad to be able to revisit it again in 2022 and that even if our circumstances change and worlds and realities move and shift around us, there's something that has a lovely connection with other points of time that music provides that puts us in a, I suppose, a, a philosophical space that might 
potentially be where we want to be. So this is 3CR Monday Breakfast, the home of great interviews talking about current affairs and exploring issues on social justice from perspectives that don't always get the airtime that they deserve. So we're proud to really uh, have a conversation with you at the moment uh, that's going to discuss um, uh, the importance of how aged care is managing during this COVID-19 pandemic. You'll be hearing from Viv Allenson, who spoke with Jacob, one of 3CR's Monday's hosts, uh, who is going to be talking about how aged care is really managing during this period of time. It's a story of government neglect and the sector being overworked and underpaid. This is Viv Allenson speaking with Jacob. It's 3CR Monday Breakfast, 7.29am. So we are joined by Viv Allenson, who is the CEO of Morova Aged Care. Viv, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jacob. Pleasure to have you on. Why don't you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your position in aged care? Well, I just turned 64 on Monday, so I'm very excited to think that I've st- I'm still standing through this battle called COVID. Uh, I've been the CEO at Moroba since 2000, so it's uh, my 22nd year as CEO, and I've been here since 1994. I started as Director of Nursing, and I came from the acute uh, public hospital sector from Royal Newcastle Hospital, where I was an Assistant Director of Nursing, and Uh, a young administrator. So I've had a lot of experience in all sorts of health, uh, midwifery, renal, um, emergency management. I was uh, acting director of nursing on the day of the Royal Newcastle, over the Newcastle earthquake. So I got to do a major evacuation and a lot of uh, emergency management early in my career. So I feel like it sort of set me up for the crisis that we're in now, Jacob. Of course, sounds like many years of experience across a large range of different uh, sectors in public health. And I'm sure the last two years in particular have been immensely difficult um, for aged care. What have some of the major challenges been? The major challenge would be lack of government planning, foresight and support uh, in a sector that has, it's well known to be under-resourced and a, a sector that's broken. Uh, there's been report after report indicating very clearly that the sector needs major review and major changes to it if it's to be sustainable and if it's to give the community confidence. So the government, uh, governments after government have failed to address the basic problems in aged care. And one of those major problems is poorly paid staff and poorly subsidised as services. So until that's addressed, uh, I can't see that we would survive, even get through this pandemic, let alone another one. And we know there's more to come. And uh, the challenge has been the lack of planning from government. They say there was no handbook on this, but I have to say in healthcare, uh, there's been many plans around a pandemic um, to prepare for that. I wrote a plan many, many years ago, uh, a business continuity plan, an emergency plan for a pandemic. So for the government not to have been prepared for this is a national disgrace. Mm. And, and how has the lack of planning and, and the lack of staff 
affected the quality of care that your residents receive? Well, we've been very fortunate here at Morova because we did have our own plan here. We've had a lot of things in place. We were well prepared with uh, with supplies and a robust workforce here, but we're now finding that very challenging now that we actually have resident cases and the Omicron now is just going through the staff like a packet of crackers. So we know that care is impacted and we know part of that is that families uh, aren't able to see their their residents uh, freely as, as readily as they were once able to, like two years ago. The world changed dramatically in aged care over these two years. Uh, like who'd have thought we'd ever see the day where people had to register in and be monitored and be wearing masks and only two in the room and not allowed to move around the facility freely uh, for families uh, that makes a difference to us because families are such a support to their loved one and they also uh, provide fresh eyes and ears for us because we're caring for someone every day and it's very easy just to miss some subtle changes. But when someone may not have seen someone for a week or a fortnight and they come in, they notice something's different with mum or dad, uh, then they're able to report that to us. So that's an important part of the the partnership that we have in care. Uh, But also staff are now very fatigued. So we know that residents are very aware of that. Um, We had, uh, uh, I got some commentary yesterday from our chaplain uh, who spends one-on-one time with our staff. Uh, She's our spiritual care coordinator. And it's just, was just lovely. They're so aware and sensitive to what's going on around them. They're saying, we, you know, we're aware, look, some of these staff, they've been here like over 12 hours uh we know they're doing more than their normal shifts and we're worried about them and and that's just so lovely because our our residents even though they're in care they have a an important place in society uh and they care about others and we just we just love that about what we do and you know that's what makes it such so rewarding work we form these lovely relationships with people but the time to develop and build on those relationships is really tight so whereas staff may have had some time to to just sit with uh, Mary or Jack or whoever just have that extra chat it, there isn't time anymore uh, that things are so stretched. Every shift now during this pandemic, this recent outbreak, um, we're short-staffed. So mm. last week, uh, or oh, I think it was Monday this week, um, where our outbreak spread to residents, uh, I was making beds, mopping floors, cleaning toilets, assisting residents with their, with grooming Um and, you know, just to try and help the staff get through. And, and the care team leader said to me, Viv, I haven't had any sleep and, and I, I, I'm short with short staff. I said, well, please just go and have a break. Go and get a coffee. Uh, you know, I'll just be here. You know, the staff can call on me if they need support. Um, and, and that's just how hard it is. Uh, and I was glad to see her the next day. She came back, which was great. She came back to work the next day. And I said, how are you today? You okay? She said, oh, I fell asleep by 6.30 and I, I got up in time for my shift this morning. So I felt great. So, you know, people are coming back. They, you know, they don't want to let the residents down. Uh, but we know that 
it's it's very challenging and we know that the residents must be feeling it as well in terms of it's not normal they're not getting the same interventions as they and the time as they once were yeah certainly a very resilient workforce but as the saying goes you need to fill up your own cup uh, before you can fill up others so I think that definitely applies to this situation oh yes the, um, the federal government has made uh, free rapid antigen tests available for the aged care sector. Um, we've talked a bit about short staff and, and other issues. What other support do you think um, the government could be providing during this time? Well, when you say they've um, secured uh, free rapid antigen tests, that hasn't always been available and they weren't prepared to provide them uh, a pre and outbreak. Now, an outbreak happens because COVID's come in and wouldn't it have been good if before we got the outbreak, we had the rapid antigen tests to be able to test staff to come in. Now, there was no money in our budget to to buy those rapid antigen tests, but it wasn't until we're already in an outbreak that we were able to access that supply uh, to our service. So the sad thing is, the government has not been proactive all along. The aged care sector has been calling for, let's do something preventative. Let's get enough PPE out there. Let's get enough rat tests. Let's get enough access to PCR testing. Uh, let's get the workforce lined up and ready to go to support the sector. Uh, no, 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 no. Wait till you wait till you're in a crisis. Then you know we might be able to help. Uh, now. The rat testing is fantastic, but we also know we're catching people at the door, but also the same people uh, may have had a PCR test on the Saturday, come to work on Monday with a negative rat test. The result comes to them on Monday night to say they're positive. Mm. So they've already been in the workplace for two or three days. So it's, a, it's an imperfect system, uh, but it is still helping us. Mm. I see. And would there be any specific, I guess, additional supports you would like to see? Yes. Uh, we, we want to see wages adjusted immediately because the government keeps talking about this surge workforce. And I say that's somebody in the department's wet dream because it's never, nothing's materialised from it. Mm. So, they have had many suggestions from providers of what might work. Uh, I put forward a, a proposal for uh, a care support role, which didn't require a certificate three and the length of training that that required. It was a short three-day program that could get people hitting the road running, uh, but that was put aside. Uh, the, the government needs to realise until we pay a real wage for aged care workers, they're the lowest paid in the country at about $23 an hour. They can do all they like. They're saying, you know, it's up to providers to attract their workforce. We can't attract them on those wages. I'm losing people day after day going to the disability sector for $5 an hour more. Well, why wouldn't they? Uh, The disability sector needs them. But why can't the government fund the sector to pay this a real wage, a real increase, so that we can then get them through the door and then it's up to us to keep them? Uh, that's an, a, a very important part. Now, 
during a pandemic, you've then got these additional burdens that staff have to carry. So PPE, have you ever gone jogging for even half an hour in the sun with a plastic raincoat, Jacob? Well, you should try it because I think everyone should get out there, go to Big W and get a plastic raincoat and do this jog in the sun for half an hour. You will then have a bit of an idea what it is like wearing PPE for a short period of time. But our people, some of them are working double shifts in full PPE with eye, eye protection and a shield and a P92 mask, an N95 mask, and this uh, and gloves. So even just wearing having the plastic raincoat example isn't giving you the full measure. Mm. So there should be additional payments for all health workers, but certainly aged care workers, to be having this additional burden uh, in their work. So they're tired, fatigued, dehydrated, no time to get to the bathroom. It's just awful. So practical supports, you know, there should be funding to aged care to provide a flow uh, of additional drinks. So every every one of our areas that uh, is in lockdown, and it's all of them now, we're sending trailloads of sandwiches, cold drinks, chips, snacks, crackers, cheese, to, to keep the workforce sustained whilst they're working in this PPE. We've told them, come to work in shorts and a singlet top. Don't worry about your uniform so that you aren't just, a, you know, a whole outfit of sweat uh, within the first 10 minutes of you putting on that PPE. So the government needs to really address this workforce issue instead of continuing to band-aid it. They need to listen to providers instead of just pretending they know what's best when they've never set foot into an aged care service. Uh, they need to be better planned and know what effects that the uh, uh, pandemic will have on a nation, on the health of individual communities, on the health of and well-being of vulnerable people. Because it seems that all the actions they've taken since uh, early December, end of November, have been about economy, not about the health of the nation. Now, I always say, if you look after the health of the nation, you will have a robust economy. But they didn't do the class that I did. Mm. So they're just saying, no, if we have an open economy, we're going to go gangbusters. And they're trying to tell the nation that everything's tickety-boo, we'll all get uh, Omicron and it'll be, we'll be well. But they've left out the vulnerable people in our community. There is no social justice here. So not only have we got low-paid workers being uh, uh, taken advantage of uh, and forced to work in these conditions on, on low wages, uh, but we've also got all the vulnerable people, older people, disabled people, uh, people just with chronic medical conditions thrown under a bus uh, to just for the sake of, oh, we're going to get the economy moving again. Well, look what happened. People are out of work, businesses closing left, right and centre. Aged care financially uh, is, uh, you know, there's over 60% of providers that have been in the red for years and it's not sustainable. I don't know where people are going to get care if those services close. Um, the government must act. The, we had a Royal Commission that reported uh, on the neglect in the sector and to the whole report was called the report of neglect. But yet, since that report was handed down, there's not been one cent come to the bedside 
of an older person in this nation. Not one cent. And yet, where was the neglect alleged to have occurred? At the bedside. So this is what this government's doing. So if we to get more support, they need to put... A, I'd like to see them match uh, the aged care budget uh, at some degree to the level of the defence budget. Because I think people would be quite amazed at how much money is going to defence, whilst you, the Prime Minister says uh, the defence force isn't a surrogate workforce for the for the aged care sector. So they won't send in the army to help us, and yet we know there's a lot of medical and health personnel working in the, in the um, services. Uh, but, you know, we're not entitled to access that. But we'd like to access the same level of funding that the Defence Forces receive, uh, and we will one day then have a robust aged care system. Mm. Well, Viv, thank you so much uh, for all your insights on this today. I've really appreciated your time and all the best going forwards. Jacob, thank you so much, and I hope that your listeners will be activists and tell this government enough is enough. They must truly put their money where their mouths are if they want to value older people of this nation. You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast and you've just been listening to Jacob's interview with Viv Allenson about the Royal Commission into Aged Care and Viv Allenson is the CEO of Maroba Caring Communities and she was talking about how aged care has been Aged care workers have been coping or not coping during the massive public health crisis and the governmental neglect and a sector full of overworked and underpaid professionals. Yeah, and one of the points that really resonated with me was just talking about those workforce shortage challenges Mm. and how you have a sense of these incredible parts of... uh, how we provide care within the community, thinking about disability care and support, aged care support, um, also to overlap there with support for those experiencing poor mental health, all really competing for the same working pool uh, mm. of individuals. And and Viv's absolutely right that all care workers should uh, have wages that reflect the work and the incredible contribution and that they make within the community. And they are severely underpaid is that broader problem that there just aren't enough care workers generally within the community to start. So uh, even if you had a situation where you had better incomes across um, the care industry, we still would need to actually go about training far, far more people within the community on uh, in and around aged care support, in and around disability support. And I just would love to see some further foresight to acknowledge that, yeah, we've got an, a community that's getting older, we've got a community where disability is more prevalent, community where people are experiencing um, uh, poorer mental health. Let's ensure that there is a, a workforce that can actually um, really provide the best possible care for these members of the community. But for you, Caitlin, there's a a different connection uh, with this interview. Yeah, so, I mean, absolutely what you were saying, Evan, is is true, but I think it's also a bit of a chicken and egg situation where I think that there are larger issues about what kinds of work get valued, Mm. right? So, like, work often, most often done by women, by um, women from low socioeconomic backgrounds as well you know things like aged care work is not considered 
or care work in general is not considered by the federal government to be skilled or to be of, you know, it doesn't generate revenue doing aged care or Mm. nursing work. And so you end up with a situation where people don't feel attracted to those uh, jobs and apart from, you know, through sort of feeling a real like vocation, I think sometimes. So, you know, both of my, both my mum and my sister are nurses. My mum has been a nurse for over 40 years and is a staunch unionist. So I think on her 50th birthday, her present was that all of our family went to a protest, a nurse's protest with her, and um, which was great fun. And um, at the moment, my sister is about eight months pregnant and has been working as a midwife in a hospital throughout her pregnancy in um, a situation where there are women coming in with, you know, pregnant, sorry, pregnant people coming in with with COVID and having to give birth alone or, you know, under very sort of, and everyone's covered in PPE. It's just not a, it's just a really, it's a really dire situation. I think if we listen to, you know, the, the voices of people like Viv and others in the community who are in this sector, it's pretty, it's pretty dire. Ah, absolutely. And that lack of recognition and awareness that these, yeah, incredible workers, um, yeah, lack of recognition of what these incredible workers do is just really, really pertinent. This is 3C, our Monday breakfast. Here is Regular Touch by Vera Blue. Touch someone who wants them. Somebody fine and always around to give some. Never disowned or on her own to know that it's okay to step away from someone long term. Beat your own drama, feel secure in your own skin. Love from within, time to begin. Now she's alone, dancing like nobody. With no one beside her is hard work Then time moves on and he has left her wanting She was lost in his web but now she knows that It's okay to step away from someone long term Beat your own drum, feel secure in your own skin Love from within, time to begin Now she's alone, dancing like nobody is home
Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. You are on 3CR Monday Breakfast with Caitlin and Evan. So joining us this morning is Warren Roberts, the founder of Yarn Australia. Warren is a proud Thungati and Bonjalung man who founded Yarn in Australia in 2007. He has extensive experience working with original sovereign nations of Australia and has worked with NGOs, universities, as well as local, state and federal government. Yarn's story is one of collaboration through events and workshops to enact a vision of a more unified and inclusive excuse me, Australia. Welcome to 3CR, Warren. Good morning. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, no worries at all. Um, I was mentioning earlier that I've been doing the Yarn Storytellers workshops for several months and they've just completely changed the way that I've thought about my own stories and um, the way that I relate to where I live and how I live. And I just love if you could tell us a little bit about how Yarn got started. Yeah, so Yarn Australia started at the University of New South Wales uh, with a group of friends, um, a group of students. Mm. Um, basically, I'm asking a question, you know, what what is it that you know about or what do you want and like to know about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia? Mm-hmm. Um, and exploring um, the history and the culture of First Peoples. Um, and from there, we started to engage a uh, a broader approach around um, getting to know one another through the practice of storytelling. That's fantastic. And so you founded Yarn in 2007. And what's your what's your kind of mission with with Yarn? What do you what are you what are you sort of working towards, or how are you how are you sort of enacting that vision? Yeah, so um in twenty twenty one we uh yeah, twenty twenty, sorry, um we um set out to inspire one million Australians to become intentional storytellers. Wow. That's pretty amazing. How many people have you been working with so far or is it impossible to count? Uh I think it's like you know, it's it's a day to day process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you know, it's it's something that we see as a way of being rather than just looking at targets and numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's about getting out there and building relationships and connecting with all Australians. Um, and you know, it, it's really great because of the because of the technology that we have these days with um, you know with Zoom um, and other platforms there. It, it's allowing us to connect with Australians from around the country. Absolutely. So what do you mean when you say intentional storyteller? What I mean by that is um, as First Peoples, you know, we, we know the stories of a country. We know the stories of um, land and people um, and culture. 
when I think about um, intentional stories, um, you know, uh, we don't have all the time in the world to, you know, share all of our story, our life story, you could say. Mm-hmm. But if we can be intentional about um, sharing stories, um, let's share um, really intentional moments where we can connect and understand one another. Um, and this is about being intentional um, in the process. Um, so looking at culture, looking at storytelling, looking at um, connection to place, mm-hmm. you know, these are the intentional stories that we would like Australians to explore. Absolutely. And I definitely found that doing the workshops has really cemented that in my in my day-to-day actions and in my day-to-day thinking and practices and I think it's definitely part of how I got involved in 3CR in the first place was the you know sort of understanding the importance of hearing other people's stories and understanding my own story and so how um how many workshops do you have do you have many spaces available are there opportunities for people to join in do you need to have a a group to start with because I know that's how I got involved is I was invited by um, another member of our group so could you tell us a little bit about how to get involved with yarn yeah you you more or less just go to our website yarnastray.com and uh, you can sign up to our storytellers workshops on online mm-hmm. um, and, or you can you know sign up with a with a group of friends um, mm. I encourage people to do it as a group um, or, you know, as, you know, as in the, like two people, uh, you and a mate, um, and then, you know, we always have different groups always starting all the time. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I think if I had a message for people who were going to, who were thinking about doing the workshops, I think I would be keen to emphasise that you don't actually have to know what you're going to do in each workshop the like the really joyous thing is just in showing up I think and not knowing what will be revealed through the process of doing it would you would you agree yeah I think it's a process of um you know one of the things I look at when it comes to storytelling um is you know it's a process it's about Mm. understanding and learning and um you know um, and walking with, you know, all other Australians out there exploring the same um, journey. Absolutely, yeah. And I, um, I remember we t- we you told us a little while ago that Yarn have stopped using social media. Is that is that still happening? You still sort of off off the socials? Yes, mm-hmm. um, we're we're focusing on building relationships and creating a more uh, a community through our. Um, through our platform, um, through our website, mm-hmm. um, and you know, through our workshops mm-hmm. um, and our online events, yeah. um, you know, it, it is about um, you know building a relational culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about uh, word of mouth connecting with people. Um, so yeah, it's about that practice, not just uh, not just um, telling stories, but actually building relationships and and um, doing it the you know, the old classic way of through word of mouth. Yeah, no, I I think that's, it's such a, it's such a good idea. Um, social media is such a time suck and 
it doesn't really build those kinds of relationships that you're that you're talking about at all so or it, it can be very difficult to build those kinds of relationships through just using twitter um thank you so much for your for your time this morning is there anything else that you'd like to add before we before we say goodbye yeah, well, I just encourage all Australians to, you know, um, come along and be a part of um, the Yarn Australia journey. Um, and I look forward to learning more about um, all Australian stories, um, the cultural diversity that we have, and um, yeah, just looking forward to connect and, and going from there. Cheers. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Warren. No worries. Thanks. I love that a lot. I think that was a great, great chat there with Warren. And that concept of intentional storytelling, it really has a lot to it. Mm, absolutely. And I think that I do really didn't understand what that was before I started doing Warren's workshops. And I still really feel like my understanding is like very, very minimal. But I think that it it really does... Do it, doing that kind of work really does affect the way that I think that I think about my place in the world and everything. Because like a lot of my storytelling now becomes very situ has become very situated, has become very intentional. Trying not to just talk for the sake of making noise, which I think is a really common, <laughs> it's a really uh, it's a bad habit, I think. But um, yeah, trying to trying to speak in a way that's actually intentional. <laughs> yeah, I remember a drama teacher once telling me, make sure that when you're on stage, ensure that every step counts. And so yeah. regardless of how small the movement is or the action is, always do things with that sense of, of purpose. And also really, really liked uh, Jan's approach to social media, and that is the avoidance of it. I think that Facebook does play a, an awful role in terms of contracting um, how we might express ourselves or shrinking the possibilities of expression. And mm. I've been off Facebook for five years now and it's something that I really uh, have noticed is that over that time just being able to get to a point of building back to a stage where you have those far more in-depth conversations where you're really seeking out stories where when you're talking and communicating with someone that you know it's the first time that they're engaging with that material as well too and I think that um, the fact that Jan's avoiding the Facebook or Twitter that's superb in terms of just really sending a message of how it is that we go about conversing with one another Talking about good storytellers, coming up now is an interview that I recorded with Pat Ansel Dodds. It was last year in May. I was fortunate to spend a month in Alice Springs where I had the opportunity to meet different community leaders and talk about what the future of Central Australia might look like. And one interview that I really enjoyed recording was with Pat and Pat's an Arunta elder. She was instrumental in the fight for native title uh, in the 1990s in Alice Springs and is an artist as well. She's had her art displayed on the Sydney Opera House and she's really a, a key person in the community to uh, working to bridge and address and tackle the ongoing challenges that exists within Central Australia and in particular Alice that stem from racism and dispossession. We talk about the future 
of Central Australia. We talk about the role of constitutional recognition in terms of how that could support movements and communities, not just in Alice, but across other parts of Australia too. And just had a bit of a chat about her life and, and her experiences. Start off the interview by placing where we were. We met at the Telegraph Station in Alice Springs, which has a torturous history for the Arunta people. It was very much used as a, um, first of all, a, a mission and then as a place where children from the stolen generation were taken. Uh, and um, we start the interview with her recollections of the Telegraph Station. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast with Caitlin and Evan. And here is Pat. Ansel Dodds. And they were well over 65. It was in their 70s. And they finally could get a pension. Because they were paid only food money for many years. So they could get a pension. And, and it makes me sad when I see... Because I used to go out there in the 50s out to the cattle station and see my family out there working for the cattle station owners. And only working for food? Only working for food. We're here today at the Telegraph Station, which also has another connection with your family. Both your parents were part of the stolen generation, and this is where they were sent under some really horrible conditions, you were telling me, that... They had 130 children staying in the sheds in a situation where uh, you have extreme heat in summer, extreme cold in winter, really, really huge challenges. Tell me, how does it make you feel as today as we walked around the Telegraph Station and, and thinking back on that connection with the stolen generation here in, in Alice Springs? Um. I feel that um, I brought my parents here in the 70s, in the 70s, and um, asked them about what it was like here at the Telegraph Station because there was a big tin shed, and that shed was very hot during the summer because it goes up to 40 degrees, and then it goes below zero during the winter. And they were stuck in the shed. They weren't allowed in the houses, only for a school. They had a room there for a school. And they taught uh, the girls how to uh, be waitresses and stuff like that. And those photos of of the girls and my mum included. Mm. But um, I got them to come and tell me their story and my dad... It was very sad the way they spoke about it, mm. about how they couldn't talk their own languages or anything. They had to talk English. Really, yeah. Really cruel uh, making people do that. Mm-hmm. You are such a strong champion for better conditions for Aboriginal people, for land rights, for better understanding where um today when we were when we were exploring your home you told me that there was a a key moment with your dad where you felt inspired to really become an advocate and a champion 
Yeah, I didn't think about it when I was growing up. I was told by my teachers to go and do domestic work. And and I got a job in the hospital in the native ward back then. This is in the 60s, before we had any rights. And see all these people from communities. And half of the time they couldn't understand what the doctors were telling them. But my, my dad was a, like an interpreter. He used to understand them and talk English to the doctor. And um, I started to understand how bad it was for our people. And um, these things um, is important part of my history that um, I didn't think about at first when I was young. But um, I went away for a while to Adelaide and then I came back after a couple of years. Then I was um, married for 20 and I decided that um, this is when Charlie Perkins came back home to town. This is his home at the telegraph station. He was born there and his his mother was the carer of my parents. It was put in this bloody shed here. But um, I thought about it and my dad asked me uh, to fight for my country. And I changed my life and I decided to get educated. Took me 10 years and to get, and I end up getting a Bachelor of Arts degree through La Trobe. And I felt that I needed to do this to support my people because the way they spoke to us like we were stupid or something and I thought this way I can talk for my people and I'm still doing it today I'm 73 years old and I'm still doing it you're doing a a lot and they still want you to keep going you were saying that they've just extended your contract for another three years is that right yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, when when we've been talking today about some of the mm, huge work that you've done in terms of fighting for your people, a lot of that really um, came to a head and reached a key moment in um, the fight for native title uh, here in around Alice Springs. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what was involved in that. Um, We had... um because there's three groups come from Mala Springs, like Andulia, um, and Imbanda's in the centre there, and then north side is the Ilma people. And we came together through the land council and decided to all fight for Alice Springs. And we succeeded. And I was very lucky because I had been studying and I was able to talk up for my people, my family, at the native title hearing. And I felt that's the best thing that I've ever done because I could answer all the judges' questions and everything and the lawyers and to tell them who I am and where we came from and our story is connected to our country. And... I was really glad, and my younger brother was there, Frank, and also my other brother, he passed away now, but he was there, the strong 
he was a leader here and he helped us. His name's Max Stewart and he helped us talk up strong for our people. And um, I felt I did a good job for my father and my family. And when we won, that is the best thing that I ever heard when they told us that we were right. That's so important that, that they were words that you heard and it's great to hear that it's such a strong and powerful thing for you and for your family and, and for your people. Tell me a bit more about what it's meant for your people having that success with Native Title. Um, while we were going through it, the mining companies were advertising that we were going to take over all the housing and the land that belonged to white people. And it was just racist comments. And really what we wanted to have the rights over our country and to protect our sacred sites, not to worry about what they got. We wanted to protect our own country and um, the sacred sites is so important for our next generations of kids. Yeah, and I think that's important. So today I still go around to my country and I can tell my grandchildren the same thing or my great-grandchildren so they know who they are and be strong and happy about that that they come from a special place. It's wonderful being able to maintain that sense of connection and being able to continue passing stories from one generation to the next and so, so critical for for the future uh, and for, um, I think, that sense of feeling that you're... Mm, feeling that you're able to have everything that you know about your connection with the land recognised and validated and celebrated through future generations as well too. That's really, really critical. Today when we've been driving around, you've talked about some of the challenges that have been experienced in and around Central Australia um, over the last 20 years in particular. And you talked about the intervention, uh, 2007, which is uh, been an example of a dynamic where in one sense there's been really great success with native title but still representing huge ways to go and huge challenges and lack of understanding in other areas too. Yeah, the intervention was the worst thing this government did. Um, what it did, it took all uh, our rights away from all these communities Round Alice Springs, and um, they closed down 73 communities because of a report that was done when John Howard was in place, and he changed the racism law to do it, and only to Aboriginal people, and he took all the funding from all these communities, which ran their own councils, ran their own community, and had funding to employ people, and that's all gone. So what they're doing now is that the people are coming into Alice and they've lost a lot of things, but they have to go back to their own country 
and start getting back and teaching their kids their culture. And to me, that's so important. Now the kids are going on the streets and pinching cars, smashing windows in the streets. But we have just recently have a, have our traditional owners of Alice Springs walking around the streets at night, some of the grandmother's group and some of our men, senior men here, who are monitoring the kids now and picking them up and taking them home or taken to different um, um, buildings in town where they have different programs for the kids to have a feed and have um, different things that they could do. But they're not going to school and they need to go to school at least to just learn to be educated, but it's not happening. But the the kids have have lowered down a bit now, not as many as there was walking around the streets. So I think this is a really important thing that they realise that they they realised that it was a white man's stand that they were destroying. But it's still our country. Doesn't matter what they say. So they gotta respect these old people, these people that walk around the streets at night to help them. They're under people, yeah. So that's important today. Really, really important. So that's some sort of um, recognizing that there's a, there are shifts in terms of how young people are understanding their connection to land and their connection to country. On the other side, what do you think needs to change in the mindset of politicians and decision makers who also contribute to this situation as well too? What they're doing to our people is going backwards. They're not going forward. And um, I know the council just recently put on some staff to do this night, going at night in the streets and paying them. And that's important. But it still needs more work to be done because that's only part of it. And most of these kids come from these town camps and their parents have to really think about maybe going back home as well to teach their kids their culture as well mm. and make them feel proud not to come in town and end up in jail. That's not right. That's not their life. So I think like that. And they're destroying it by just going in jails and they continue to do that if they don't get help to stop it. I understand and appreciate that. You've spent so much of your adult life uh, trying to get the message through to politicians uh, that change is needed and that there needs to be greater level of recognition and listening to Aboriginal voices. Thinking about the future, what would you like to see? What would you like to see change within the community in terms of how um, Aboriginal voices are heard and understood? The first thing I think is they should be looking at seriously looking at a treaty for us, and so that we have the rights of our lands, and and we can teach our young people, and let this government start respecting us properly. Not thinking we're going to, 
you know, we're not going to be knocked around anymore. We are tired of that. We've had 200 years of that. It has to stop. We are different people, and we are one of the oldest races in the world, and there's no rec recognition in Australia, you know, and that's wrong. And they have to start moving forward, not start start thinking in the old way of causing racism stuff, how they did to us. We couldn't go into shop. We couldn't even be recognised when we turned up for a job or something because we were black. And that's racism. It is, really. And they've got to stop that. This is, this is our country. Recognise us. And start looking at a treaty and respecting it. That Uluru statement was the most important document and it came from people all around, Aboriginal people from all around Australia. But what do they do? They put it aside. Are they so frightened of anything that we want? Why do you think they are so frightened? They think we might move on and be better than what they want us to be. We're not slave labour anymore. We are people wanting our rights in this country. We were here first, thousands of years. And Captain Cook didn't discover Australia. We were here first, my people. I think that's really, really strongly put. Thinking about, thinking about this incredible part of Australia and just as a... A couple of final questions. In terms of what you think the rest of Australia can learn from um, the Runta people, so thinking about all of the white fellas like me living along the coast um, and um, non-Indigenous Australians in, in other parts of the country, thinking about things that you're really proud of here, um, what do you think we can learn? What would you like us to learn? Well, I'd like you to learn, that's slowly happening here, is that um, kids in school are recognised for who they are. And I think some of the schools are changing here in the Territory about that, to make the kids proud. They are Indigenous, they are from here. And there's some classes that have Indigenous languages that's been learnt in the classes and having um, elders like myself that's um, that been to go to the schools and talk to the kids, to be respectful to themselves and the people, you know, instead of causing so much harassment like some kids do. And yet there's other young people that want to learn and want to go to universities, and that's fantastic. Not only you learn white men away, but learn our way too. Their own culture, of where they come from. That's important as well. Adi, Pat and Sodods, I think that's a, a really beautiful note and a powerful, strong note to end it on. Thank you for chatting with me. No worries. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> that was Pat Anzaldodds. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast where it is 8.25am. Well,
To the First People, January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement, leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. Join us on the 26th of January, Invasion Day special broadcast, 9 o'clock till 4pm, right here on 3CR, 8.55am. 3CR's First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, deaths in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. We'll be highlighting the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, one of the world's longest continuing protest sites occupying the lawns of what is now Old Parliament House since 1972. Very humiliating that black people people that they think so little of, that these black people have found a way of protesting and making their point known the way no other group in this country has ever done. Well, we want them to hear us now. What do we want? Land rights. rights. What do we want? Now? Stay tuned to 3CR from 9am to 4pm on the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Twenty-six of January, that is two days away from now. It is 8.26, it's Monday morning. Caitlin, we've had quite a show today and it's been a show where we really have been talking about the importance of storytelling, the importance of listening and the importance of understanding. Absolutely. It's been a really great show to be a part of today. I think I've really enjoyed listening to all of the different stories and all of the different people that we've spoken to today. Viv Allenson, Warren Roberts and well Pat Ansel Dodds as well too. Yeah. I agree. And and I think that that is something that is so critical come twenty sixth of January is just the importance of having conversations and particularly mm. for non Indigenous Australians and white fellows across the country is the importance of listening, the importance of understanding and the importance of recognizing exactly how Australia as a country has developed, what it has uh, been built upon, uh, um, the level of dispossession that has occurred, but also stories of resilience as well too and Mm -hmm. real um, amazing uh, communities and the continuing contributions that have been made by First Nations communities too over thousands of years. Absolutely, yeah, and there's also, you know, Ash Barty in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, which is really exciting to see and like the sort of support that she gets, the support that, you know, people throw behind her is, you know, fantastic. And I think it's a real, um, it's a real statement to white Australia, isn't it? Um, it's kind of cool. It's the last week of summer. Caitlin, your plans for the rest of the week? Try very hard to stay cool. <laughs> Staying cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Maybe going and throwing myself in the pool. That's about it, really. What about you? Yeah. Tomorrow, I take off for southern New South Wales, continuing on to do some recording on how Australians are looking at the year ahead, doing a few interviews about people's sense of home and also what folk would like to see discussed at this year's election. It should be really interesting. So might make it up to Queanbeyan and then around Wagga Wagga and the Riverina. That's the plan at least for the week ahead. But I'll be back here next Monday at 3CR from 7.30am 
to actually from 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Oh, times and dates. I'm a wonder with those. <laughs> Caitlin, it's been so good um, being here with you this morning. Um, thanks so much for the great chats and conversations. Thank you, Evan, and thanks to everyone for listening. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations.